0: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do come before you today to behold the wonderful mystery that is Jesus. So Father, whatever we have brought into this room, Father, that, that clouds our vision from seeing and meditating and considering and reflecting upon this gift of grace, Father, may you eliminate such distractions and burdens that we could see you clearly. Father, that we could once again reflect upon the beauty of the sacrifice on the cross, the beauty of the empty tomb, and once again, trust in that promise and anticipate that hope that just as Christ was resurrected, so will he be when he comes. What a beautiful mystery, Father. We behold it now by looking beyond just the songs that we've seen and into your holy word. Speak to us, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you. you. all can be seated. Well, good morning, church family. What a beautiful Sunday. Let's put our hands together again for the baptisms today. Be joyful in that. It's awesome. A, a reminder for many of you that back uh, in, in Easter, we set a goal of trying to see the Lord move in our midst. We're praying for 200 baptisms, um, and I haven't been keeping count, so I'll, next week I'll give you an update. Uh, but we actually have in mind to really uh, Put together another emphasis on this in December and having a baptism service. And so we'll kind of tell you where we stand towards that goal. But what a beautiful thing if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you've seen five baptisms and uh, just a a great reminder of the gospel and the way it moves and the way that God continues to be faithful and something definitely to celebrate. And so grateful for the families uh, that we've seen and, and had a chance to celebrate with this morning. If you're a guest or a visitor in particular with, On behalf of those families, we're so glad that you're here and are excited to worship with you this morning. So um, as we kind of begin today, I I was thinking about these phone commercials that you're seeing a lot of lately. I don't know if you remember kind of when the new iPhone was being released. They talk about these new camera qualities that it has, and it basically has this cinematic level type of technology so that if you film something with your iPhone, it looks like the movies, and it seems to be pretty... Impressive. And then uh, just the other day I was watching TV and I saw the new, what is it, Samsung, I think the Galaxy Z that like folds and flips and the screen is still, it's just crazy. I sit there and I watch these commercials and my mind just continues to be blown by the level of sophistication and technology. Am I alone in that? Like it's just amazing what you can see on these phones nowadays. And, and what is interesting about it though, and I think many of us would confess as I was having this conversation at lunch with somebody not too long ago, is with all that sophistication and all that advancement in technology, it kind of sucks us in, doesn't it? And I feel like we, we continue to live these lives where we're just more and more engrossed with those devices because of all the bells and whistles and things that it provides. And I've actually gotten to a point where the last time I had a chance to buy a phone, I contemplated, despite all those great little commercials and, and the alluring gadgets and technology advances, I actually contemplated going in reverse and simplifying my life and, and like going back to the true flip phone that was just a phone and numbers, you know, and being like, oh, I think my life would be better if I had that. But as I really started to think about it, I thought, well, I don't know if I could do this. What, what would I miss, right? Of all the different gadgets and all the technology that's at our disposal now, what are the essential ones that we've kind of become so accustomed to? I don't know how you would answer that. I know for me, probably at the top of that list is maps. I, I just, I use the map feature all the time. Uh, Even if I know where I'm going, I do it to check traffic, but a lot of times I don't necessarily know where I'm going, so I'm always using the map feature. And I was reminded of just how beneficial uh, beneficial that is when a couple of weeks ago, I was up in Grapevine doing a little father-daughter day with with Annabelle, and we had finished kinda hanging out, and I was trying to figure out the best way to get home, so I pulled it up on my phone, and she asked me from the back of the car, she's like, hey, how did you used to get directions before phones? And it was kind of such a sobering question to realize, like my children have never known how you found your way before you had a device. And so it kind of was fun for me to reflect upon the previous eras of how you found direction. So I told her about the MapQuest era. Can I get an amen for MapQuest? Anybody there? Right, and so I told her about how I used to have to get online and type in the address and print it out, and and then you would always kind of crack up because MapQuest would always remind you how to get out of your own neighborhood in case you had forgotten. And, and But I always was frustrated with MapQuest because the names weren't always in perfect alignment, so you could easily miss an exit. And then what do you do? Because that's all you had, is you, all, your, all your printout was the only thing you could rely upon. So I told her about MapQuest. Then I really blew her mind with the Road Atlas. Can I get an amen for the Road Atlas? Anybody in here remember those days? Okay, we're getting generationally progressive. But as I, I was a child, that's what I told her. I said, like, when I was your age, my parents had this big book in the car that had all these streets and you would actually chart out your path the night before and i remember those days of the road atlas and so she was mind blown by that and as i was reflecting upon all these different eras i realized like how difficult it is to be lost these days right i mean with the technology that we have it literally tracks us like they always know where we are you're rarely lost and and i thought about that how i can't really Think of not just now, but in any of those eras, a moment where I truly felt lost, like turned around, sure, confused, missed an exit, sure, but like legitimately don't know where I am, don't know how to get back, never really had that kind of moment of lostness. And, and I don't know if, if you could draw upon a story where you felt that way. I tend to think that a good majority of us probably have a similar experience, never truly Been lost. But I think a lot of that depends on what we mean when we say lost and how we're defining that. Right. So I I looked up the the definition just on uh, online and what what you see there on dictionary.com, and here's how they define it: being lost is having gone astray or missed the way, bewildered as to place or direction. And so, yeah, you think of that definition, to be bewildered, to have missed your way, and I think about it from a geographical standpoint a location standpoint. There aren't too many times that I've felt truly lost, but what if you move that definition to other arenas, and you think about seasons where you've maybe been bewildered in your pursuit of a career, or at school, or you've lost your way in terms of relationships, or in terms of purpose, and faith, and understanding. All of a sudden you start thinking about other arenas and it's very easy for I think many of us to go, oh yeah, I've experienced that. I know that sort of lostness. And and so that's really kind of the fundamental question that I want you to be reflecting on, not even really just this week, but this week and next, is what does it mean to be lost? Not just geographically, but in all those different arenas. Would you consider yourself to maybe be in a season of lostness and what does that look like and in what capacity? And not just the question of what does it mean to be lost, but the equally important question, what does it mean to be found? And that's really what we want to try to dive into today. So grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. You saw from the children's message where we're headed, we're really entering into two weeks worth that are going to drive home this theme of lostness. Uh, you get to Luke chapter 15, and you find a series of parables that rival, in terms of familiarity, the Good Samaritan. I told you all several weeks ago about just how well-known the parable of the Good Samaritan is. And obviously, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son probably rival it in terms of how familiar it is to the everyday person. And so we're about to go through these well-known parables. Today, we'll look at the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then next week, we'll, we will start off Missions Month by looking at the prodigal son, all in Luke chapter 15. So let's just read it. Let's remind ourselves of this parable that Jesus teaches. We're going to be in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, there's your parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And here's the thing about these two parables. They are two of the most straightforward parables that you find in the scriptures. Right? They, they pretty much mean what you think they mean. Uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, expositional research where you discover some truth and go, Oh my gosh, I had no idea this word meant this or this historical con-. It just kind of means what it means. And so what I want to do is, is kind of briefly cover just the basic understanding of it and then seek to apply it to our context, or at least to our, our way of thinking a lot of times through this lens of faith. And so, so to kind of set it up, let's at least pay attention to the context and what prompts the teaching of this parable. Once again, it's the muttering of the Pharisees. Pharisees and teachers of the law, they seem to be a constant uh, player in the telling of these parables. They tend to always be one of the instigators that causes Jesus to share and teach in, these, in this capacity. And so here you have a Pharisee and a teacher of the law, they're sitting there, Jesus has got sinners and tax collectors gathering around him and they are muttering to one another and I want you to understand that that word doesn't just mean they're whispering, right? They are frustrated, it means to grumble, to complain, right? So they are not pleased with what's taking place. And so when you think about what it is that is causing that, that frustration from their point of view, what they say to each other is, he is this is a man who welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so what is frustrating them is this idea of welcoming these sinners and tax collectors. And so that word welcome simply just means to receive someone, to accept their presence with friendliness. And so I really like that definition, and I like what that conveys and what that means to each and every one of us because we can really stop and reflect, hopefully, about just how important it is to feel welcomed. Have you ever gone through a season in your life where you felt maybe ostracized or lonely or disconnected, and then somebody, could be a family member, could be a friend, somebody welcomed you. right? They, they, they brought you in. They received you with friendliness. And, and the way that that made you feel, the sort of warmth, the sort of comfort, the sort of uh, connectivity that that provides, it's an incredibly powerful thing to feel welcomed. And so we, we've hopefully been recipients of that gesture, and so oftentimes we also need to be reminded that we need to be those that are gonna be welcoming towards others. And I think this is the one that perhaps we struggle with a little bit more. Right? I think for us, a lot of times our understanding of welcoming doesn't necessarily go as so far as what we're seeing with Jesus here, and let me explain that. Right? So, so what we have a tendency to do is when we think about actually building community or engaging with other people, we tend to kind of create or cultivate a group. Right? And for a variety of different reasons, family, friends, and we associate with a certain group because of our shared experiences, because of our upbringing, because of our geography, because of our income level, because of our race, because of our gender, because of our age. Right? We have all these different ways that we define and associate ourselves, but it is more or less somewhat of a restricted list, which means there's a whole other list of people that we don't necessarily spend time with. And what I mean is that this list that we create, these are the people that we're going to have in our homes, that we're going to spend time with, right? We're going to actually be in, in community with one another. But there's this other segment over here that doesn't receive that same sort of treatment. And so what we tend to do is, knowing that this is kind of our natural tendency, is we equate welcoming to a mindset. When we've all of a sudden are encountered a question of, well, are you welcoming of other people outside of your group, we might instinctively say, well, Sure. Because in my mind, if I ever saw somebody from that group, I would be polite, I would be friendly, I don't have any ill feelings towards other people, and so therefore, I am welcoming because of my mindset. What Jesus shows us here is that to be welcoming is not a mindset, it's an action. He's eating with them. Right? So so what this is about is going to the level of saying, I'm not going to just have an agreeable or polite mindset to people, but who am I inviting to my dinner table? Jesus is seeking them out, right? And it was that sort of intimacy, that sort of association that had caused this consternation amongst the Pharisee and the teacher of the law. And it's a good reminder to us that if we're going to truly be welcoming, it's not enough just to have a a frame of mind, but we have to actually seek people out and invite them into our homes and around our tables. That's what Jesus is doing. And so with that level of intimacy and frustration, you see this this comment that Jesus obviously either overhears or knows what they're thinking, and that's what prompts the parable. Right? They're frustrated because I'm in close community with these tax collectors and these sinners, and so he begins to tell the parable of lost sheep and lost coins. And it's very straightforward. Right? The sheep, the shepherd imagery is a well-known image throughout the scriptures. It's one that is, is uh, referred to to God as a creator. So the people hearing this would understand that that is a reference. To God, and then if you and I read it from the context of how we know the Gospels, and you read it in co- uh, connection with John's Gospel, where Jesus actually declares himself as the Good Shepherd, we know that he is representative here in this parable, right? And so you have the imagery, and you have this this picture of God going out and seeking those who are lost, and then you have the lost coin. Now, what we know probably is that this uh, kind of definition in terms of the value of these coins and these specific coins is not represent just a loose change this was probably like her savings and so to lose a tenth of her savings was a big deal hence the urgency with which she begins to search this isn't the, the equation of like you and I dropping a quarter and it goes underneath the couch and we're like ah, I'll get it later this is this is a significant loss and so she searches urgently now what you see in both stories is that once the item that was lost is found there is rejoicing And then Jesus connects that level of rejoicing with this message of repentance. And that's it. So there you go. That's all I got. Y'all good to go? Should we call it there? It's simple, straightforward. Some of y'all are like, is he really about to let us out early? (laughs) No. (laughs) Come on, you know me better than that. But that really is it. Like, that's the message. Very simple. And so as I was reflecting and reading upon it, I thought, okay, well, what? What do we do with it? How do we apply that? And the question that kept being laid upon my heart as I was reflecting on this is, do we really understand what it means to be lost? I mean, that's the essence of it. Something was lost. Someone was lost. Now they're going to be found. So what does that mean? A lot of times we can create this Christianese, this, this terminology within the church, but do we ever stop and actually reflect upon it? And so what I think has happened is a lot of times when we use this terminology of someone being lost and found, we we have a tendency to be somewhat reductionistic with what that means, and and we kind of limit that picture to to this moment of my life before Christ, right? That that was the season, that was the, the marker, the duration in which I was lost, and then I heard the gospel prayed a prayer, walked down an aisle, got baptized, whatever, whatever our journey was and everything after that meant I have been found in Christ. Now listen, all of that's true. All of that is absolutely an appropriate explanation of or understanding of lostness. My, my suggestion to you this morning is it's too reductionistic. Because what it, apply, what it implies is that after I have this moment of, of acknowledging Jesus is Lord, that I somehow never Wander, And I think most of us who have lived life for any extended amount of time following Jesus recognize the propensity of our hearts to wander, to stray from the fold, and to venture off and to be lost. And so it's all of it. And so I wonder how you would answer that question. Some of you in here, you you may be in the season where you're thinking, I don't know that I could ever really say I've trusted Jesus as Lord. Some of us have maybe made that decision, but we, we might be in a season where we are truly feeling ourselves wander. And that's really what I want us to explore, is how do we know what that looks like? And not just how do we know what it looks like, but what causes it? What are the things that either prevent us from seeing Jesus as Lord, or the things that begin to lead us towards wandering? And so I just wanna review a few of those things so that we can be mindful of them. And as I review these things today, I want you just to be listening. Is this me? Is this something I can identify with? Because the minute that we can recognize the the susceptibility that we have towards becoming lost, the more we can really begin to appreciate this parable that Jesus is teaching. So I was reading an article on a site that was called Zondervan Academic, and it was really a book review uh, by an author whose name was Sam Chan, who talks about a lot of these different things. And so I'm I'm using a little bit of his list that I saw uh, in this research, as well as a few other observations for myself, But here are some of the things that are highlighted in terms of what are those things that that create that distance, that lostness, so to speak, from Jesus. And the first thing is really just the unbelievable nature of the gospel, right? By that, I mean like miracles. I mean, if you really break it down, we're talking about a virgin birth and resurrection from the dead. There are a lot of people that hear that and they think that is hard to believe. I don't see that in everyday life. I haven't seen that. In, in my personal experiences. It feels like fantasy. It feels made up. It feels like fairy tale. So how am I supposed to just suspend all this belief and embrace all these miraculous things? It seems beyond comprehension. And so for a lot of us, just that nature of the miraculous stories make us go, I don't know if I can really believe this. And I think that's important for us to recognize because when we're talking about lostness here, we're not talking about, uh, people that have never heard the gospel, we're not talking about people that have never set foot in church. Let's be very clear, I man, you can spend your whole life in church and never really believe in Jesus. And so part of that is because I sit here and I hear things in scriptures and we hear these miracles, and we go, "Guys, is that real?" And part of that tension that we feel when we feel that question is faith. And, and while I'm not going to go through every little potential uh, obstacle that we have to, to believing that creates lostness and then giving an, op- an opposing answer, I'm really just trying to define lostness, I'll, I'll at least try to address it briefly, is the reality is, is that when I think about some of those things that we have to believe in and put our trust in, the reality is, is no matter what your worldview is, you're living by faith. Atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Hindu, you fill in the blank, it's faith. You're going to inevitably reach something that you can't explain. And you're just going to have to trust based on theory, based on science, based on history, based on ancient scripture. Whatever it is, it's faith. So the question is where am I going to place my faith? Which of these possible answers and scenarios is worthy of my trust and my commitment? But no doubt, all of us, no matter what worldview, are going to encounter something that's, that we are going to have to say, can I truly? believe this there's no doubt that that's part of it and maybe that's some of us this morning another one is sometimes we struggle with the concept of sin now this one is is really interesting from my personal observation especially in our cultural context today let me let me try to break this down for us today part of what has made our understanding of sin so complicated in our current climate is because of subjective truth Right, we've talked about this on numerous occasions, that the spirit of the day in the wider culture is you have your truth, I have mine. And when truth becomes subjective, all of a sudden I can create my own morality however I want. And therefore I can defend my actions in any scenario, in any situation, because it's my truth. And the more that we embrace that sort of thinking, the harder it is to really become aware of our own brokenness. Because I can constantly justify my behavior, And the more I can distance myself from even recognizing brokenness or sinfulness, then the less I'm going to be really aware of it. Now, what's also interesting in our culture, I don't, I don't know if you guys sense this or not, but here's part of what I'm sensing. and There's a little bit of a shift within which how we even view that, that I think this subjective view of truth is contributing to. Uh, we used to be, because of our Western mindset, a very guilt and innocent view of life. Right? You're either guilty or you're innocent, very black or white. So if you broke the rules, then you're guilty. If you didn't, then you're innocent. That typically was our way of thinking, and that really kind of informed our understanding of the gospel. Right? You're a sinner, you're guilty. But with subjective truth and always being able to defend our actions and our morality, what we're seeing, I think, play out is a shift out of guilt and innocence kind of worldview in our culture to shame and honor. Right? Because what we are fearful of now is the shaming, right? the, the, the mob. The masses and the costs that can take place, right? There are behaviors that we might be able to justify or excuse in terms of morality, but that we might be embarrassed by. And so we're kind of shifting towards this shame and honor viewpoint, which we need to kind of embrace as the church to begin to think about that there's still the same application when you think about sin, that sin is shameful before God's eyes. So does your life create a shame before the creator, or does it create a sense of honor before your creator? But the point is, is that with that view of subjective truth and the shifting out of guilt and innocence and into shame and honor, I think has created a tremendous disconnect for many of us to truly understand sin. And so two things tend to happen. We either completely remove ourselves from it and have a very limited awareness of any level of brokenness within us because we can justify everything. And so if I don't really have a real sense of my sin and my brokenness, then why do I need a savior? It's very easy. And I even need to consider Jesus or anything religious because I don't need it. But the other thing that happens is the other extreme. Because of so much shame, because of so many mistakes, because of so many things that have gone wrong, we're overly aware of all of our brokenness. We're overly aware of all of our mistakes. And we begin to convince ourselves there's no way God would love me. So we avoid church, we avoid community, we avoid the faith because surely he can't connect with me. So one of those barriers that keeps us in that wandering frame of mind is this unhealthy or unrealistic view of sin and brokenness. Third one. Third one that we would also have to consider is the lives of Christians. This is one that's referenced a lot. A lot of times the reason people have no interest in Christ is because of his followers, right? You, you look at a lot of different things that have taken place throughout church history and even in our culture today and you see either hypocrisy or insensitivity. Right, so a lot of times we can look out at all these folks that are claiming the name of Christian, claiming the name of evangelical or whatever title it is, and they're not matching it up with their lifestyle. Right, so it doesn't look like by the way that we are living that we actually believe what we say we believe. And that's a major problem with how other people and even ourselves begin to understand what it means to follow Jesus. And that's going to keep us in that wandering mindset. Or if it's not hypocrisy, it's insensitivity. So we have all these different issues that, that are relevant to our culture today. People are coming in and they're asking questions about race and sexuality and justice and orientation, all these different things. And the church is either not talking about those things or they're talking about them in a very insensitive way. And so all of a sudden, man, if that's, if that's what his followers look like, I don't know that I'm really interested in him. So It's a great reminder of what it means to be a light what it means to live out and to be holy as he is holy because what people see in his church is gonna be how they often view him. Which also leads to another major contributing factor to why we end up staying lost or wandering, questions. Right? We have a lot of difficult questions. A lot of people come to the faith and they're trying to sort things out. Right? You see very common questions like, how could this world be created by a loving God if there's so much pain and suffering? How could a loving God condemn people to hell? How can we be so sure this is the only truth when there are so many different other religions and views that are out there? How can we truly make that claim? All very important questions. And honestly, there have been sermons throughout my tenure here where I've addressed pretty much, I think, most of those. And so if you want to go deep, let me know, I can direct you to those. What I would say today is that actually, asking questions is great. I think one of the problems in the past is that the church has tried to simplify faith to the point where we say, well, you shouldn't ever ask questions, right? It should just be that easy, and it's not. So I want you to know personally, man, if you have questions, ask them. Those are good, right? That's where your faith gets refined and sharpened. I think the big difference is you can reach a point where you're no longer asking questions, but your questions are controlling you. And that's where all of a sudden we can put ourselves in a little bit of a trap where we just continue to stay in that detached and wandering frame of mind. Two more, one of them would be uh, the beliefs we grew up with, right? A lot of times we hear about Jesus, we hear about what it is that he offers, but we have something else that was put in place, right? We grew up in a home where we didn't go to church, we didn't need faith, we grew up in a home where we were a different religion, we had a different belief system, whatever it is, and so honestly, some of us, we cling so tightly to what we've had, we've never really stopped to think critically if we're holding tightly to the wrong things, and so part of what we all have to do, again, kind of coinciding with that ability to ask questions, is to think critically and open ourselves up and say, okay, what do I really believe and why do I believe it? And what does Jesus say about that? Right? We can't cling too tightly to the things of this world or things of our past and then limit our ability to truly understand the essence of the gospel. But here's the last one that I would argue is probably the, the number one reason we wander or stray Or continue to diminish that relationship with Christ. Personal pain. I think that's the one that's maybe not articulated the most. Right? We can easily redirect it or pivot it to one of these other categories I just referenced. But as I continue to grow as a pastor and have more and more conversations with people. That's what I see more often than not. At some point, life is really hard. In numerous points, life is hard. And so we go through trauma. We go through tragedy. We lose a child. We lose a loved one. We face a debilitating illness or disease. We go through something, and the inevitable question as we go through that pain is, how could God do this? And that weighs on us. And so all those things combined make us susceptible towards wandering. And I think that's what I want us to recognize. Like, I want us to treat it seriously. All of us have that tendency. All of us are sheep who are likely to go astray. This is not just this one moment before you met Jesus. It's, It's the way that we have to constantly be mindful of and guard against. And so does any of those things resonate with you this morning? And it's a season and a moment where perhaps the Spirit is pressing upon your heart to say, I'm calling you which kinda complements what we talked about last week, if you were here with us last week. And the question last week was, who are you listening to? Right, what voice are you following? And the reason that's important is because when we recognize that our hearts have that tendency to be able to drift and to lose its way, to become bewildered, what we're gonna start looking for and listening for is a voice that gives us meaning, a voice that gives us direction. So what voice are you listening to? Second Peter chapter two, gives us a very important reminder that I wanna share with you this morning, just as a word of caution, just to reiterate part of what we talked about last week. He's talking about, in the second chapter of Second Peter, of these teachers that will come in and lead people astray, and he continues by saying, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. My point in sharing that with you this morning is just how destructive and how misleading those voices can be. And so we have to come into this room, we have to go through this life mindful of our own propensity to wonder and how susceptible we are to follow those voices and just how lost we can become. None of us is immune to it. And so what's the answer? The parable's simple. What's it teach? Repent and repent. Repent. That's a simple word that we talk about all the time within church. It often coincides with the discussion on loss. What does it mean? If you're going this way, turn and go this one. Right, and so if you're wrestling with any of those things, that this call to repentance means to, to pivot and go the opposite direction. But again, when I was studying this and thinking about this, I started thinking, man, we really struggle with this idea of repentance. Why is that? I mean, when was the last time, and just answer this on your own, when was the last time you felt like you truly repented? And, and what did that look like? Chances are, it was probably within your own privacy of your own prayer life. Like how many times do we see public acknowledgement of repentance as a church? Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons is because repentance begins with knowing God's word, right? If I'm gonna change directions, I gotta know where I need to walk. I gotta know the path ahead, and if we divorce ourselves from the word of God, if we limit our chances to really dive into the word of God, then I don't really know where to turn. I may know to leave the direction I'm going, but I may still just pivot and go a completely another wrong direction. So we have to consume the word of God to know where we're going, but then we need community. We need accountability. What do we talk about all the time that discipleship looks like? Community, teaching, accountability. We need people in our lives that are gonna point us to the word of God and hold us accountable to live it out. That accountability is so difficult at times, isn't it? Again, it's difficult because we're, we're already living in this culture where there's this subjective truth and it's easy for us to rationalize our behavior, but more often than not, what has happened within the church dynamic is that we really just kind of come here to consume, right? Just to, to more or less kind of, be fed for a couple hours a week to make ourselves feel a little bit better here and there, to maybe see some people and, and have some small talk and all those different things that are good. But how many of us walk into this room with a full awareness of our brokenness, eager to confess because we know we can be changed? How many of us show up that way? How many of us walk into a discipleship group ready to confess And repent and ask people to hold us accountable. My marriage is failing. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling with depression. How many times do we actually come in with that spirit? Because we know we can change. Man, we're so quick to shield those things. And hide those things. And so repentance almost feels like a lost art or a mystery. And we're scared of it. And the reason that's so Convicting as we read the stories because when Jesus teaches about it, you know what happens when people repent? You rejoice. That should be one of the most joyful things we see in the church. Right, this moment where somebody that's broken and hurting and struggling with sin comes back to God and the church should erupt with praise. We should see it all the time and celebrate it and be joyful with it. Think about what that would be like to to continue to create this environment as a church, our church specifically, where you could walk in here and know that this was a safe place where you would be welcomed and received and loved and you could confess and people would hold you accountable in a loving way and joyfully walk on that journey with you. That's what Jesus is teaching. That's what he's demonstrating. That's what he wants. And so that's where we really need to put our hearts and our minds, and this to me is is the anchor of it all, and I'll close with this, right? How do we do that? How do we get beyond this this fear and this hesitation that that can pull our wandering hearts back to the good shepherd? How do we get beyond those things and create that spirit of joy as men we listen to the parable? Because what we discover is that Jesus is seeking us. When I was looking through these stories of people that have been lost since I didn't have a personal one, and found all these like surviving stories, and you know what almost all of them had in common? They found help. Like it's always a story of, well, then I, you know, got through this stage, I climbed over this mountain, I made it through this, and then I stumbled upon a village, I stumbled upon whatever. Like so many of them, that's the theme. That's not here. The sheep doesn't find its way back to the fold. The coin doesn't miraculously get rediscovered. What we see that is so amazing is that we have a loving God and a creator who is seeking you. So if you're here and you're struggling with any of that, and you you can recognize or resonate with a season of lostness, with your heart having that tendency to wander, and you have that sense weighing upon you, Be encouraged today that you're here because our God seeks you out. He is not hiding, he is not concealing, he is searching for you, he wants you, he loves you, and he will even carry you home like a shepherd carrying his sheep. Because he loves you so much. And when we discover that, things change. When we anchor ourselves in that, things change. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to be sinful because we have a loving God who's going to lead us into repentance. He's going to lead us into transformation. He's going to lead us into new life and give us new hope and give us new purpose and reconciliation. And when the more we truly understand what it means to be lost, the more we truly celebrate what it means to be found. And that's where joy arises. And the thing I love about joy is it's contagious. It's contagious. Right, Because the minute we truly embrace that, you know what you want to do? You want to share it. That's when you all of a sudden, when you truly remember what it is to be lost and to be found, all these other folks on your list that maybe you haven't talked to, maybe you haven't reached out to, you want to go and you invite them to your table and you say, let me tell you about this God who loves you and would seek you and find you the same way he found me. And that's what we're called to do to remember what it means to be lost so that we can celebrate what it means to be found so that we can go and share that joy with one another and the world around us so that collectively with one voice we can once again sing of God's amazing grace and joyfully declare to one another, "I, I was lost, but now I'm found. May we celebrate that together this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that if there's anyone here today, God, who has wandered, that once again they would hear you speak to them, Father. That they would feel you calling them home. God, we know as we've declared this morning that our hearts are prone to wander, and so we declare to you, take our hearts and seal it in your courts above. Let us forever be reminded of your amazing grace. Father, through those of us that are here today who have wandered for whatever reason, may we once again discover the beauty of repentance and not live in fear and secrecy, being hesitant to confess, being hesitant to try to correct and to go a new way, Father. But may we create a sense of community that celebrates those things, that can confess to one another and celebrate what it means to repent, because we know that it is in that repentance we find the joy of your love. And so help us, Father, to resist that tendency to wander, answer our questions, heal our wounds, restore us, and in that restoration, may we see once again what it means to be carried by the good shepherd back into the fold. And may we declare that now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.